Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Glad you are here. Uh, thankful to, to be able to gather. Uh, we got home late last night from a show choir competition in Fort Wayne, so we rolled in about 1.45 a.m. <laughs> so that was fun. They did well. It was a good time and uh, glad to be here this morning with you all. We are going to continue our message in our series, The Cross. And we've been talking about the cross of Jesus and the significance of what the cross means and, of course, the resurrection. And we've been looking in the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church he planted that he started. And they were having some issues. If you remember, we talked about this each week, but Corinth was just a very much like a modern city today. And I won't go into the details. You can read about it online if you want to sometimes, but it was a wicked city. There was even a temple to Aphrodite. And so it was known as one of the most sexual cities in the entire Roman Empire, where you could go and get any sexual thing you wanted. And Paul went there to tell these people about the good news of Jesus, that he died for them, that his cross was the path for them to die to themselves, to pick up their cross and to follow Christ because he was resurrected. And so Paul writes to this church, and one of the main theme verses of 1 Corinthians is he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to those who are being saved. And so Paul is writing and he's saying, look, the world looks at the cross, the idea of dying to yourself, that that doesn't make any sense, right? Like it doesn't make any sense as Jesus says in one place, to be in last place so you can be in first place. No, you were in last place, right? And so the cross is this message that just seems so foolish until you really dig deeper. And so that's what Paul's laying out to this First Corinthian church. He's like, you guys don't want to look foolish. You keep trying to be like the world. It's infiltrating your church. And this is God's power. That there is no other way for us to have the life that we want or to be where God wants us to be without surrendering our wills and surrendering to him. And so Paul is laying this case out over and over again. And we chose to do 1 Corinthians because I think it's a message that's very, very applicable today. We preach through all the scriptures. We have about 14 books left to go through and we'll preach through every single book of the Bible except for the book of Psalms. Um, And we pray through that book weekly. And so... As we're going through the Bible, 1 Corinthians is one of those we hadn't done yet, incredibly timely. And this is what we've looked at over the last several weeks. Number one, the first thing Paul does is he lays out the cross. He lays out where do you find your identity? And so the first part of chapter one, Paul says, where is it that you find your identity? In yourself, in your abilities, in your skills, in your works? Or do you find your identity in who Jesus is? what he did, what the story of the Bible is that we sinned and we needed someone to save us and God sent a hero, right? Like we love the hero movies. And Jesus came, he paid the price, he resurrected from the dead to prove that he was God. He ascended to heaven and now we're going to have a home with him in heaven. And Paul spends the first part of this book reminding the people of what their identity is in Jesus because he's getting ready to just lay into them. And he wants them to be sure that if you know Christ, and you're walking with him, you've got to look through that lens as I go through the rest of the book. Then he talks about foolishness versus understanding. What does it mean to be foolish for the gospel, but not foolish as it relates to not following Christ and understanding who God is? We talked about wisdom. We talked about after you have those things, then you're kind of looked at and said, okay, are you a spiritual person or not? You say you have understanding. You say you know Jesus, But are you really a spiritual person? And then last week we looked at the fact that Paul said we need to be tested to be found faithful. In other words, there's kind of some judgment that needs to happen that we need to allow to happen in our lives to see if we truly believe in Christ and we are truly faithful and following him. And so Paul builds up to this section, 1 Corinthians 5, that we're getting ready to go into. And really this is the progression of the gospel right? Man sins. We need someone to come and pay the price for that sin, or we pay the price. We die. God spends the Bible pointing out foolishness and understanding. He gives his wisdom. He he wants to create a people for himself, a spiritual people, and then he wants them to take that faithfulness they have in God and preach it to the world. Now Paul gets to this place in 1 Corinthians 5 where he says, sincerity and truth sincerity and truth. 
You see, you can be sincerely wrong. And you can be truthfully insincere. You can be sincerely wrong, and you can be very truthful with someone and be completely insincere. And Paul is trying to say, based on all these things I've laid out, I want you to see what true sincerity and truth are. And what I'm getting ready to tell you that you're going to have to do to prove this within your church to a certain individual in a certain situation is going to be very hard for you to hear. Because this is not the God we like to talk about anymore. We like to take the God of the Old Testament and pretend like he grew up and changed. That he's not wrathful, he's not judgmental, he's not going to hold anybody accountable, he just loves everybody now. What, like God changed? He, well, he, got, he became a better God. Well, then that means he wasn't God in the first place. The Bible says God has never changed. He completes and fulfills things. He fulfilled the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. He did it, not us, right? So he can fulfill the things that he says, like a king fulfills an edict, but he can't go back on who he is, otherwise he ceases to be God. He ceases to be holy. But in our culture, we are so afraid to talk about the reality of the cross, the reality of the wrath of God, and we don't understand, and Paul is going to show us in just a minute, that the reason this is important is because if you don't understand this, then you miss the love of God then you don't understand the mercy and the love of God that he has on your life. And he lays this out so clearly. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you this morning for those that are here. As we dive into your word in 1 Corinthians and jump around a little bit to kind of see your picture that you're showing us that you had Paul write, I pray that you would open our hearts. Would we open our hearts to allow your sincerity to come in this morning and your truth to penetrate? Lord, these are some hard teachings. But they're really not. They're consistent teachings that you have been throughout history consistently teaching. Because you sincerely love us and you are sincerely holy and can't go back on your truth. So help us to hear this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. So we pick up at the end of 1 Corinthians 4. You can go online if you go to our page. You can click on our um, live page and the scriptures are there. But in 1 Corinthians 4... 18, we looked at this at kind of the end of the message last week. Paul says, now some of you are inflated with pride, as though I were not coming to you. In other words, there's some of you that don't think I'm going to come back and hold you accountable. You're so inflated with pride, we're like, oh, Paul's gone now. He's done with us. We can just do what we can figure this out. It's our church. It's what we want to do. It's, that's where Paul's saying, and he said, you guys are just so inflated with yourself. You, you are so full of yourself, Right? And he goes on and he says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will know not the talk, but the power of those who are inflated with pride. In other words, he goes, there's all these talkers, but I'm going to come and I'm actually going to look for what's really going on. The actions that are happening in people's lives. I'm not just going to come and you're going to say, oh yeah, I'm good. I know Jesus. It's all fine. No, no, no. Let's really dig into that. I'm going to come and kind of help you dig into that because you guys have stopped doing that as a church, which we kind of have often in our culture today. And he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? We're going to see what kind of power Paul's talking about in just a minute. But how do you want someone to come to you? With a rod or with a spirit of love and gentleness? The Bible says that if you spoil or if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. That's what Proverbs says. That God will use a rod of discipline in the life of his children. We can't stand to talk about that today in our culture. You can't hit a child. You can't. Do you realize, and I've said this before, do you realize that, that, that the penalty for rebellion in the Old Testament was stoning children publicly? That's in your Bible. That's your God. That, that's rough. And I deserved it when I was growing up. I know it, right? And there was a process that we'll see in a minute that that was an Old Testament process that Jesus repeats that you just didn't grab your son because he wouldn't unload the dishwashers, take him out in the street, call your neighbors, and kill him in the street. That's called injustice. That, that, That is not a legal process. That is you're mad and you just want your will done, right? 
There's a process to this, but we don't even want to talk about a God that would even bring a rod because, oh, well, the reason he does it is because he loves us. The reason Paul's going to come to them, he's like, I'm going to come to you with love and gentleness, but if you won't listen to the letter I'm writing, I know when I get home, I'm going to have to pull out the belt. If you won't listen to mom, if you don't listen to me when dad gets home or when mom gets home, it's the same thing. It's the, like the way our hearts are and the way that our hearts have to be disciplined so often in our life is the same thing. And some of you might say, well, I never had to have a rod used on me. And well, great. That means you responded to love and gentleness. You're way more spiritual than the rest of us. Praise the Lord. Either that or you're just way more smarter than the rest of us and you're like, I just don't want to get hit, so I'll just do what they tell me, but I'm just as wicked as my brother at the core of my heart. I'm just not as stupid as he is, right? And that could be another option. And so Paul goes on. He begins to talk through, how do you want me to come to you? Leviticus, we looked at this last week. He said, the Lord spoke to Moses. He said, speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because Yahweh your God I am holy. You must not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. In other words, don't be partial to the poor and give them a pass because, oh, well, they're poor. And he goes, don't, don't be preferential to the rich because, oh, well, they got money and power and so I don't want to. No, he's like, you have to judge based on the sincerity of who God is and the truth of his word. It's what Jesus said. Jesus said, stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgments. Listen, we don't do this anymore. We talked about this last week. We always look at the outward and then make decisions. We're in such a hurry to make decisions in our culture that we won't even take the time to inspect the inward. We just make decisions trying to fix stuff because the outward, we're just trying to fix what looks on the outside like needs to be fixed. You ever been to a mechanic and they just start throwing money at your car? Well, we found this, now we found this, and then we found this, and then we found this, and you're like five grand in, and it's still not working right. It's like, do you think maybe you could have taken a little bit longer? I mean, if you would have told me, I'm going to need your car for two weeks so I can really find what's wrong, I would have figured that out. But instead, you just kept throwing money at it and telling me you fixed the problem, and it's still not fixed, and I'm frustrated, and we have a problem in our relationship. God's trying to tell us that we desperately need to understand what's truly sincere or we're going to get it wrong and how sincere God is, like Paul is saying, and we've got to understand the truth or we're going to be in trouble. 1 Corinthians 5.1 says this, It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles, Gentiles meaning people who don't know God, who have no Old Testament law to to guide them. A man is living with his father's wife, also sleeping with her. That's the insinuation here in this passage. He's not just like living there. He's having sexual relationships with her. Ooh, right? Ooh. And the church is allowing this. Sound familiar to the church today? We are being challenged beyond challenge on so many issues today to stand up to. And Paul, like we have to, knows that there's going to be a love and a sincerity, there's going to be a love and an acceptance, or there's going to be a rod. Like, I don't know what else to do. I don't. Now, here's the deal. God took the rod out of the church's hand under the new covenant and put the rod in the hand of Christ when he comes to judge someday. But that doesn't mean there still aren't tools in our arsenal to discipline. The church has gotten this wrong for many centuries because the church is no longer a government. Before, God created a theocracy in the Old Testament. Remember that? And he gave them governmental rules and laws by which to run their nation and their culture. When Jesus died on the cross, he moved the kingdom from an earthly kingdom being built and said, that is done. That's fulfilled. It's finished. Now I'm going to go to heaven and build a heavenly kingdom. And someday I'm going to bring you to there if you know me. And I'm building it and then I'm going to bring it back to earth. 
You cannot build the old kingdom anymore. It's gone. It ain't coming back. But that doesn't mean we don't have work to do. It doesn't mean that we don't go out into the world and tell people the truth. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, you guys don't realize that you guys are allowing this kind of stuff that the rest of the world who doesn't know God, who's never read the Bible, looks at and says, ah, no. And that's what we're doing today in so many places. Do you realize that the majority of the world's population today has a better sexual ethic than the United States of America. They don't know God. Muslim countries have a way better sexual ethic than the United States has. It's one of the reasons why they hate us. They don't like what we keep propagating and what we keep doing and sending to their cultures and what they're seeing men and women do. That should break our hearts, which we'll see in a minute, Paul says. So there's sexual acti- certain sexual activities are outlawed in much of Asia and in Africa. Do people still do them? Yeah, but it's not like approved of. And we call ourselves the greatest country on earth? I'm not saying we're not great. I'm not saying there aren't some great things about freedom and what we do. I'm glad to be an American. God put me here, so this is where I got to be. And I would hope that a Chinese person would be glad to be in China because that's where God put them. And he looks and he says, how do you tolerate this? He's not talking about tolerating it in the world. He's saying, how do you tolerate it among people who call themselves believers? Don't do that, he says. You see, sex is one of the greatest gifts ever given to mankind because it actually is the way we bring new life into the world. New souls are given to the world through the act of sex. When you do something sexually outside of that, it's also one of the most destructive things you could ever do when you take sex outside of its proper context. A fireplace in your home is awesome unless you start the fire in the middle of your living room on the carpet. You will burn your house down. In the fireplace, good. Sex is the same exact thing, and our culture is bombarded with it. Do you realize that Jesus never had sex? He lived 33 and a third years, and he never had sex. And he was happy and full of joy. Paul, Paul never had sex that we know of. He confessed all his other sins. I'm sure he would have confessed that one. He confessed about his murder and all the other stuff. And he was a Pharisee. See, we've been taught that sex is this natural right, that you have to do it. Do you realize that even in the animal kingdom, sex has to like be earned? You just don't do what you want to do to someone? Like, 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 like fight each other for the right. We're worse than the animals. God is, this is, this is, and Paul's like, you've got, don't back down from this because this is a core gospel belief. And if you don't believe this about the sexual ethic and that God is enough, but maybe God will give you the blessing of another person by which of the opposite sex that you can procreate and have sex with to his glory. Do you realize that God wants you to have sex as an act of prayer? The first sexual act, he put Adam and Eve together and he's like, go for it, I'm watching, this is great. I I designed you guys, you're anatomically designed to fit together, it's like Legos. This is awesome when I see all the pieces come together like I designed you. Oh, this is worship. This is exactly the way I want things to go down. See, when you remove the identity of God out of things and it all just becomes issues and you remove it from the sincerity of the identity of God and the truth of who he is, things get really messed up and that's what's happening in the Corinthian church. And Paul is writing a letter because he's like, I have heard this report and I have got to tell you, stop this. So how did the people like the Corinthians get to this point? They're not even that old of a church. They, 
They've only been around probably a few years as a church. They live in a culture that's full of sin. So part of the reason they got to this point is because they're brand new believers and they don't know the Bible yet. They don't know the things that are there. But they probably knew this because I'm sure this was an issue that Paul had to talk about considering the fact that Aphrodite's temple was there with thousands of prostitutes walking around the street that you could buy. I'm pretty sure from day one this was an issue he made clear from Scripture what the limits are before God. So how did they get here? Go to Romans 1. Romans 1.16, Paul writes this. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Pause for a second. This is our biggest problem. We're ashamed of the cross. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the cross because it's the power. No, we're ashamed of the gospel. Well, I don't know if they'll believe it. I don't, man, that's, oh, I don't. The gospel is, is all there is. I mean, Brian's shirt says loser or lover, Right? And so I looked at him this morning and I said, you know how you go from being a loser to a lover? Jesus. Great dad joke, right? Paul here is the same way. He's like, I am not ashamed of the entire story. Because the gospel isn't one thing. The gospel is the entire story of God. He goes, I'm not ashamed to look at people and say, you are a sinner. You chose to turn your back on God. You have a DNA that is cancer spiritually and you have got to be healed. And there is no hope from you outside of the person of Christ. There's no like good people camp. You don't have like Satan's camp and God's camp. And then there's like this good people camp. No, you're either in Satan or God's camp, period. You're either part of Satan's family or God's family. Period. There's no middle ground. Now, are there people moving away from Satan's family towards God's family? Absolutely. Are there people a little bit closer to God's family than, than they are? Yes. But, it, but it, one, you're either a part of one family or not. That's why the Bible says be born again. You get adopted into a new family. You got to leave the old one. So Paul is writing this and he says it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, what race you are, what nationality you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are or how much struggles you have. It's for everyone to believe. First to the Jew. In other words, he gave it to the Jews first so he could show who he was. And Gentiles back in the Old Testament committed their lives to God. They went to the Jews and said, we surrender our rights. We'll become Jewish. We'll become a part of the Jewish family. And he says, look, and also to the Greek, for in God's righteousness... For in the gospel or in the cross, it's God's righteousness that's revealed from faith to faith. Faith to faith means beginning to end of the Bible. All the faith that's ever been exercised, all of it. And then he says, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven. Oh, I'm sorry. The righteous will live by faith. So the righteous will live by faith. Do you realize that everything in our world is by faith? I say this at least once a month in our church. Everything in your life is by faith. All of it. None of you inspected your chair when you got in here. Do you know the guys that set up your chair? They pull pranks on each other all the time. They're college students. They might have taken that one chair and thought, I know where Mark Johnson sits. He always sits in the same spot. Let's put this chair right there for Mark and see what happens today. This will be funny. Mark's in pretty good shape. It won't hurt him. Right? You, you by faith every day just live your life trusting in things that you've, you don't know about, you've never inspected, you don't know the math, you don't know how it works, but you just use it. Because someone in authority told you it works. And then it proved itself to work. That's God. God says, I tell you that I am the one that makes all things work and then I show you through who I am in Jesus and through the cross and through all of human history that it works. And he goes on, he says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness, in other words, they want to do what they think is right, not what God says is right. They suppress the truth. Well, I, that's, what, that's what you think. Well, that might be what the Bible says. Well, that's what you say. Well, I, I know that's there, but, but do you know this verse too? They're constantly suppressing God's authority over their life. Paul says, of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to him. God has made sure to make evident that there is a creator. And do you realize that the more we discover about the world, 
the more science goes, oh my goodness, there's more that we don't know that we never thought we couldn't know. It gets deeper and deeper. The layers peel off and things get more and more vast and point more and more to someone engineered this mess. Someone's tinkering with this every day. Everything points to that and yet people will stand and go, no, I can't believe in all that faith stuff. You do believe in faith. You woke up today hoping that the sun didn't burn out. It could have just decided, yeah, we've done enough uh, helium-hydrogen reactions. We're kind of done. See ya. But by faith, you got up. You believe the sun's going to be there. You don't worry about it. How many times have you worried about it? I wonder if the sun's going to be there in the morning. I don't know. I mean, I know they tell us how old the earth is, but maybe it's older. Maybe the sun's going to burn out. Do they really know? Have they ever timed a sun? No one's been around that long. Yet by faith, you trust. Paul goes on to say, For God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen through, uh, clearly seen in the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made, and as a result, underline this in your Bible, people are without excuse. Paul's writing to this church in Corinth. He's trying to get them to see that he sincerely loves them. He's trying to get them to see the truth. He's writing to this Roman church, and he says, people are without excuse. See, we are a generation of excuses. We love to have an excuse for everything. You don't think so? The next time you're confronted by your roommate or your wife or your husband, see what comes out of your mouth. Why didn't you do, and if they look at you and go, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I just, actually, I wanted to watch TV and be lazy, and I just didn't want to do what you told me to do. That, that's the truth. That, that's not what you say, right? Maybe you do. Maybe you're super righteous. I don't know. Maybe you had a good day, and you were like, yeah, I'm going to tell the truth. Most of the time, I'm like, well, you don't understand. You see, the stars weren't aligned right, and then I was trying to do something, and then, you know, I stubbed my toe, and then I sat down on the couch, and the TV was on, and I got involved in a show, and then I did some reading on my phone. It was really important stuff about COVID, and I've got this figured out. And I mean, we go into all these excuses. God's like... I'm God. You, people don't have any excuse for not recognizing and crying out to a creator. To, to saying, I know that there's a God out there somewhere and I don't know who you are. I don't know how you work. Please help me. But that's not what we do. This is what Jesus said about excuses. Jesus kind of made it clear in John 3.16, which we all know, he says, For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And we read that and we're like, oh, yes. And yes, it's, that's the gospel. Like, that's beautiful. That's why we don't condemn anyone. That's why this guy can live with his dad's wife and sleep with her because we just don't want to condemn him because look at what Jesus does and he just loves everyone. Well, Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't stop with the guy with the, you know, colorful wig and the sign that says 316 on it. That's not where he stopped. There's a follow-up to this. Verse 18. Anyone who believes in Jesus is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. You're without excuse. God sending Jesus in the world made it so clear who he was, what he was doing, what his plan was, explained the whole Old Testament, all the feasts, all the festivals, all the sacrifices, that it is, you are absolutely without excuse now because you are completely condemned, period. That should like hit us. That should make us take seriously those people in our lives who don't know Jesus that the Bible says there is no hope for them. None. He goes on and he says, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They're already doing what they want to do. Their deeds are evil and they're like, we want nothing to do We don't want God to expose anything. I got my life figured out. I got it all done. Leave me alone. God's like, so again, you have to sincerely communicate the truth to people. 
You don't just look at them and go, you know you're going to burn in hell, right? Last week in the kids' class upstairs, one of the kids asked the, one of the hardest questions, right? Asked my wife, teaching the kids' class, and said, Miss Susan, so if you go to heaven because you trust Jesus, and like then you can know you're going to heaven and that he loves you, what happens if you don't trust Jesus? How do I explain eternal torment burning in hell to a six or seven-year-old in a room full of even younger kids? Like, do I tell them, you're all going to burn? Now go home and talk to your parents. Oh, mom, my son, get me. Susan looks and she says, my wife is so good with kids. I'm not. She's great with kids. Like, it's amazing. She's just, it's a gift of God. And she looks and she says, well, you know when you're sick at home and you feel bad and you want to feel better, but you don't feel better and you're your mom and dad can't make you feel better. Or maybe mom and dad, mom's not there for you. Like, just dad's there. And, you know, that's how that goes. You know, and, like, you know, and that's, that's like forever. You're always going to feel bad. You're always going to be separated from your family, quarantined away. It, forever. And you never get better. And I thought, wow, what an explanation. And that's the explanation that, that's given here. And, that's what Paul goes on to say. He goes, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. They claimed to be wise, which is what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. They became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God. In other words, crying out, saying, God, you're glorious. We don't know how to get to know you. Please save us. Please help us. No, they didn't do that. What they did is this. They got images resembling mortal men. This is what we do in our culture. If I just found the right man, the right woman. Oh, I found them. A year later, I got it wrong. Now if I can just find the next right man or the next right woman. So we change it for, for birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. That's all the idolatry. Therefore, God delivered them over in their cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity. Don't miss that. It says God delivered them over. He's like, fine, if that's what you want, if you don't want me, if you don't want to worship me, then have your heart. You let your heart run rampant. Let all the hearts of your culture run rampant on each other. And when it is a complete disaster, then maybe, just maybe, you'll cry out to me and say, we're done. Help us. There's no other option God has. He says, fine, have it if that's what you want. He goes on, he says, therefore he delivered them so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In other words, they didn't have the sincere truth of who God was, and they worshiped and served something created instead of the creator. And we do this all the time. We always, we are idol factories. See, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that the human heart is an idol factory. We are constantly building idols all the time to take the place of God's authority in our lives. He goes on, he says, who is praised forever, amen. This is what God delivered them over to. Degrading passions. This is why the first Corinthian church is in this mess. Because they're following this Romans 1 pattern. You can watch people in your life follow this pattern. You can watch someone follow this pattern and just watch it happen. I cannot tell you the number of college students that I've seen their faith completely derailed because of a relationship. They stop going to church, they stop talking to their family, they stop doing everything because that person is the answer for me. The man, the woman. Are they a Christian? Oh yeah, they call themselves a Christian. But they don't take you to church, they don't encourage you to be with the people of God, you don't go to Bible study, they do have a spiritual mentor. Oh no, they just prayed a prayer when they were seven and so that's good for me. He goes on and he says... The males, or it says, for even in their, their females, exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. That's homosexuality. The males in the same way also left natural relations with females and were infatuated in their lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. When you go down that road and you see the mental health issues among those that are sexually active, it's awful. Because at some point you wake up and realize that you've used a bunch of people and that you've been used and you don't know what to do with that. And it hurts. 
Not to mention all the disease and other things that are spread when we don't do things God's way. He goes on, he says, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, he goes back to what he said in the beginning. Because they wouldn't acknowledge God, they keep saying, no, no God, no God. Well, then they don't have the power of God. God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. Why? So that other people, the Gentiles, would look at the First Corinthian church and say, we want, don't do that. That's bad. That's why he delivers people over. So the rest of the world can look and go, that's awful. Don't do that. And can I just tell you, a lot of the world is looking at our country and going, that's awful. Don't do that. And in our pride, we're like, we're the greatest country ever. No, we're not. The greatest country ever is the one Jesus is going to bring back. With one king, that's it. With full authority. Everything else is a mess, and it will be raised up and teared down, because that's what God does with nations. He raises them up, and he tears them down. He goes on, and he says, They didn't think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God, and God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. Over and over again in Romans 1, it says he kept delivering them over. They are filled with unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceits, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, pride, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. I mean, how many more words can Paul come up with to describe and help you see, am I really believing in God, or does one of these bills fit me? Then he goes on and he says, they're Although they knew full well God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. Welcome to the USA in 2022. And even welcome to the Western church in 2022. That we won't call things what they are in sincerity and truth. Paul goes on to say in 5.2, And you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief, so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. One of the best chapters of any book I've ever read in my life, other than the Bible, was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It's chapter 8. It's called The Great Sin, and it's all about pride. Read it sometime. And C.S. Lewis lays out that the foundation of all sin is pride. It's the idea that you're not God, you can't tell me what to do, and the authorities that you've established, the church, government, all those things, I'm not listening to because I'm my own God and I'll do what I want to do. That's the essence of all sin. It's what Romans 1 lays out. And Paul says, you're inflated with pride instead of filled with grief. He's like, when you see this guy, it should so fill you with grief for what he's doing and what his mother, it, what the situation and the family brokenness, it should so fill you with grief and instead you're filled with pride. Pride can go two ways. Tune in if you're tuned out. Pride can go two ways. You're so prideful you won't do what God commands and says because you're like, I, God loves me, I can do whatever I want. Or you're so prideful, you do more than God commands. You're so prideful, you won't do what God commands, or you're so prideful that you try to get everybody and try to do more than God commands. So in other words, this guy, instead of grieving for him and crying out to God and confronting his sin, there were those in the church that were saying, look at their family. They're a mess, but look at our family sitting together. All of us doing righteous things. Money in our pockets. Those poor saps over there. Thank you, Jesus. And on the other side, there were those that were like, man, I kind of, if he can get by with that, then I could get by with what I, I don't want to confront him because I want to kind of do my thing. So he gets to be his own God in this church. I want to be my own God in this church. So, Yeah. I guess just God gives you fire insurance and then you live your life. Here's your fire insurance policy and have a nice life. Both are pride. We always think of pride as the boisterous, you know, out in front. Not necessarily. There are people who are deeply prideful who are introverts. Those are the scary people, by the way, right? Like they're coming up with stuff in their mind you don't even want to know that's happening there. Like us extroverts, we just do it and you're like, did you just do that? Oh gosh, yeah, I'm so sorry. I also think introverts are some of the best evangelists because when introverts open their mouth and speak to someone, they do it by faith. I can talk to a tree all day. You know what I'm saying? 
So I think God honors introverts because it's by faith. They're like, oh, I got to speak. Dear Jesus, help me. And then they speak and like miracles happen. And God's like, Matt, shut up. Right? I mean, seriously. So he goes on. He said, and he said, this is widely reported. Everybody knows you're doing this. This has gotten out to all the church and you guys are still allowing it to happen. He goes on. For though I am absent in the body, but present in the spirit, I've already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were present. Paul says, I've already made a ruling or a judgment as the church planter who raised up elders and put people in charge of you. I've already, how can he make a decision when he's not there? Wouldn't that offend you? Well, you didn't see what happened. You don't know why we did this. You don't know what we're doing, Paul. And Paul's like, I've already made a decision, so I'm just letting you know. It's already been decided. So how can Paul make a decision like that? How can Paul be so confident that he wasn't even there to see it? He wasn't even there to get all the information, to hear all the stories of everybody and how it was all going down. How in the world did Paul believe he was making a good judgment? Turn to Matthew chapter 18. See, Paul says right here, I've already decided. In other words, in the Spirit of God, and the Spirit leads us to the truth, he says, I'm obeying what Jesus taught. So I know what decision to make because I know the process that's already happened. If your brother sins against you, Jesus says, go and rebuke him in private. So Paul knows that the person who brought him the report, Paul probably would have looked at that person and said, have you spoken to them about this? Yeah, I did. Oh, and they didn't respond at all to it? Nope, they kind of kicked me out the door and said, how dare you judge me and move on. Oh, Then he goes on, he said, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. You've won his heart back to Christ. Then he says, but if he won't listen, then take two more, take one or two more with you so that the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. That's an Old Testament command, by the way. Paul isn't just making this up off the fly. He went back and grabbed Old Testament, or Jesus isn't making this up. He went back and grabbed what he spoke in the Old Testament and he's reapplying it in the New Covenant. He's like, and so... You need other people. So Paul would have looked at the person who brought the report. Well, did you take anybody else? Did you go? Yeah, yeah. This person and this person. Paul's like, oh yeah, those are two trustworthy people. And we went to him. We said, you can't do this. Stop this. And then we, did they respond? Nope. They still still didn't respond. Wow. Goes on. It says, if he pays no attention to them, then tell the church. And that's why Paul's getting this message is because the message has gotten out to the churches that Corinth is a disaster. And Paul is more concerned about their souls than he is some publicity publicity or PR stunt. He doesn't care. He's like, I want everybody to know this is not okay. And so Paul lays it out. Look what it says. But if he doesn't pay attention to even the church... Let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. If he won't listen to church leaders after one-on-one, two or three-on-one, if he will not submit his heart, then you have to tell the church, we're not sure they're a believer. I don't know if they're a believer or not. Maybe they're a believer that's just struggling and they're going to repent. Or maybe they're not a believer and they're going to leave and they're never going to come back. I don't know. That's not my call. I just can't allow what Jesus said to not happen. And you know that Paul obeyed this because he knew the Old Testament, which had this same process. The Old Testament, this is the Old Testament process brought under the authority of Jesus. It's how you got to stone a son. You brought him out to the public square, right, after he'd been confronted one-on-one. The family had confronted him. The tribe would have confronted him. They brought him before the elders of Israel and said, would you just stop being rebellious? And this son is like, I will not. I'll do what I want, and you can't stop me. And they're like, then we are not going to allow this to happen. And they pick up stones, and they stone him. Do you think they picked up stones and were like, I think I can get him between the eyes. Woo! Oh, hey, try to see if you can hit him in the shoulder. Do you think that's how they did it? No, they wept. I hate to have to do this to someone I love. I don't want to do this to anyone. I don't want to have to do this. Don't make us do this. Please. But they had to follow the law, and the law was a rebellious children with stone. And you know what that did in the Old Testament? And you know what it does in the modern church if we practice this biblically, not with pride, but but sincerity and truth? Little Johnny that's standing there watching Bobby get stoned, 
And he and his parents are not in a really good relationship and he's been really rebellious lately. What do you think little Johnny's response is to watching little Bobby get stoned in the street? At best, he's going to fake not rebelling. Right? I mean, at worst, he's going to fake not rebelling. At best, he's going to look at his mom and dad. He's going to look at the community. He's going to look at them crying because Paul said, you should be grieving when you do this. This should not be, I'm right, and you better, you better measure up. No, you should be grieving inside when you have to do this. And as they see the community, Johnny looks around and says, is this is what God looks? I wonder if God responds this way when I sin. I wonder if God weeps when I break his heart. I know God will hold me accountable like he did my friend. I don't want that. See, that's what Paul's driving at. We've lost this in the church today. We've lost this, and it's killing us. He goes on to say, you, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus with my spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus, let me show you what the power of the Lord Jesus was. What does it mean to assemble in the power of the Lord Jesus? Jesus actually tells us in John 14, verse 12. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Philip, Thomas, and Peter are doubting who Jesus is. They're struggling. Jesus is coming down to the end of his ministry. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem and die. A few chapters after this, he's praying for his followers that they won't leave him. Okay? He says, I assure you, the one who believes in me will, do, will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than I do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything according to my name, I will do it. And when you read that passage, what are the works that you think or that your heart runs to that Jesus is talking about here? Say them out loud. What are they? Miracles, right? You think of all the works of Jesus and you think, oh, so I can walk on water? I'm going out to Lake Griffey today. I'll test the ice, right? You think of healing people? You think of being pop, like drawing crowds? Jesus said it's an evil and adulterous generation that demands a sign an evil and adulterous generation that's looking for miracles and signs. If that's what you thought when you read that, your heart's been twisted because here's how Jesus answers what his power looks like. You ready for this? This is gonna freak you out because it freaked me out when I discovered it. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. Do you realize that the greatest miracle ever done in all of human history is that a man came in human flesh and obeyed every single thing ever asked from Scripture, ever asked from his Father, and never sinned once. That is a way bigger miracle than being able to just heal somebody for an instant and then they go right back to being sick again at some point. The greatest miracle, Jesus says, is, and, and what do you ask for in Jesus' name? Do you ask for stuff and miracles? Or do you ask, I want to be obedient and I can't do it without your power and your church and your body. I need help to follow your spirit so that I can show the gospel and proclaim the gospel to the world. I want to obey your commands like you did, Jesus, because that was the most amazing miracle ever done. Because Jesus even saved people in the Old Testament who were incredibly sexually immoral. Abraham was sexually immoral. David was sexually immoral. Solomon was sexually immoral. Jacob was sexually immoral. But they kept coming back to God. Jesus never left God. That is the ultimate. Jesus says, it. if you see yourself obeying my commands, you should pause and be like, wow. God's power in me did that because I really wanted to eat everything I saw and I actually cut a portion and set it aside and only ate that. That's a miracle. 
That's the power of God, and we don't talk about that anymore in our churches. We keep using this verse, say, oh, you just ask Jesus for that house. You ask him for that money. You ask him for that stuff. You ask him for all the stuff on the earth. Look, we can ask God for things. He wants us to ask him. But do we even ask him for the powerful things? Those aren't powerful. A new house is not powerful. I'm sorry. It's just not. It's going to break down. You're going to call me, and I'm going to have to come fix your toilet. It's going to happen. It's not that powerful. But if you can obey God in sincerity and truth, that means the power of the Holy Spirit has come in you through Jesus Christ and it is going out of you and you should stop and just be like, wow. And when you don't see that happening and you see people willing to participate in sin, not surrender their heart, not come under the authority of God and come under the authority, when you see that, you should say, oh man, I'm scared for them. Oh, we got to pray for them. God, bring your power to help them to see how great it is to obey you. Help them to see how great it is to say yes to you every time you ask. So that when they make prayers, they're actually the prayers you want them to pray, not prayers they made up. Man. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's like, I came in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on, then turn, this is what he says. Turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The Bible says that we are to turn people over. It's what Paul wrote in Romans. In the Old Testament, they would send people out. They would turn them over. There comes a point when you're like, if you want that, have it. We're done blessing it. We're done enabling it. You can have it. And you shouldn't do that on your own in anger. It should be in brokenness, through prayer, and the help of the body of Christ. But we don't even do that anymore. Families don't even bring those kind of questions to the church anymore. And it breaks my heart. He says, turn him over. Why? Because you want to get him? I'm going to turn you over to Satan. Take that. No. It's so that he'll see that he's destroying his flesh. He'll wake up one day and go, oh, my flesh is going to be dead someday and I'm destroying it. What's going to happen after that when I'm not strong anymore, when I have a sexually transmitted disease, when I have babies from, you know, seven different people? What's, what's going to happen after that? Exactly eternity so that maybe in the day of judgment maybe just maybe they'll cry out to God before it's too late he goes on and he says and Luke says this the story of the prodigal son the prodigal son took off and when he comes back it says he got up and went to his father he was in such a mess his flesh he's literally feeding pigs he's eating pig slop as a Jew and he's in the pig pen because he's squandered everything God has given him he's a complete disaster and he comes to his senses the day of the Lord comes to him and he says so he got up and went out to his father but while the son was a long way off his father saw him was filled with compassion and ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him this was a radical picture to the Jews of Jesus' day who were full of pride and full of judgment. This son doesn't deserve this. No, he doesn't. But this son has come to his senses and he's ready to kill the flesh. Look at what he says. Then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. In other words, I claim no rights. I'm done. I'm finished. I surrender, Dad. I'm done. The world is a disaster. You're better than anything. If I can just be around you, not even be your son, I'm happy. But the father told his slaves, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put the ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring a fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine who is dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they begin to have a celebration. And the older son walks into the celebration and goes, ugh, you never did that for me. There's the pride of the church. Exposed the older son's heart. He thought what he was going to get what he deserved. He was, he was working for his dad, working for the father, so he could get to heaven and be like, look at everything I got now. And his heart was exposed. First Corinthians goes on and says this. Paul says, your boasting is not good. They're boasting about how loving they are, how tolerant they are. We're so loving and tolerant. Not good. Or maybe they're boasting about how righteous they are. We're not like them. We let them be around and hang out, but we're, we're different than them. 
Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. You are indeed unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore let us observe the feast, not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul refers to communion here. He refers to the Old Testament Passover, which is the picture of communion, which we're going to celebrate next week. He refers to this, and he says what they would do during Passover is they would go through the house, and they would clean out all the yeast, any bread that wasn't unleavened or had yeast. And it was a symbol. Yeast is always a symbol of sin. And he's saying, you should be cleaning out the sin in your life and helping people get the mess out of their lives, and instead, you're inviting it in. That's not the Passover, and that's not Christ. That's not sincerely true to people. He goes on, he says, I wrote you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. I love this. I love that he says, I told you not to to associate with sexually immoral. Oh, we don't. We come to church every Sunday. No, you... You go out into the world, you have to to give them the truth. He goes on, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. We do not practice this today. This is in the New Testament. It's also in the Old Testament. Now, should we do it on our own? Be like, I'm not eating with you because you made me mad. No, that's pride. But when a decision has been made that this person will not repent, they won't even struggle with their sin, you cannot show that you are with them, that there's fellowship there. And you should weep over that, not be like, yeah, I can't eat with them because I'm so righteous. No. It should be, I I struggle to eat with them. I struggle to be with them. I struggle to know how to handle this situation. I don't know how to engage them because they have just been so prideful and they will not deal with their sin. I don't know what to do because they still call themselves a believer. It amazes me how many people will post on Facebook when some famous celebrity calls themselves a Christian, but they won't post any of their family or their grandparents who have been Christians who have faithfully followed God their entire lives. Are they a Christian? We don't know. They're still living with their girlfriend. They're still greedy. I don't know if they're a Christian. I'm calling it into question based on their lifestyle. Maybe they're just not mature yet, which Paul wrote about. Maybe there needs to be some more time. Great, we can be patient. We can figure that out. Is anybody confronting them or is everybody posting every time they post a Bible verse? It's like, oh, look, here's another Bible verse from this Christian artist or person. And and then you see how it goes every time. The shoe drops, right? Something comes out and you're like, oh, my goodness. They just said that all paths lead to the same place. I don't think they're a Christian. And I've been putting them on my Facebook feed like we're going to celebrate what God has done. He's obviously changed them because they prayed a prayer. Jesus was the one who said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. You know what the will of the Father is for you? To repent. To come home like the Son and run into the Father's arms, full of sin, full of mess, and then to have him change you and give you a life back. It's the will of the Father. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone among you is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted. Tempted with pride. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Do you not see that you're nothing like the prodigal son, like the people that came to Jesus and they said, I'm nothing. I'm nothing in this world. I... You're in a good spot because you're getting ready to see that you are everything to me, Jesus says. 1 Corinthians 5.12 says, For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside, but God judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. In other words, it's not for us to try to avoid all the evil of the world, which is what people try to do today. It's for us to look into our own hearts and deal with that evil and look around at the people that call themselves believers and specifically the local church and begin to help them walk with one another and allow confrontation and conversations and to be long-suffering and gentle and patient like we just read about. And that's what we should be doing as churches. And most of what we're doing as churches is showing up on a Sunday and celebrating and having a big party and living like hell all week long. 
It's got to stop. It's got to stop in my heart. It's got to stop in your heart. It's got to stop. Paul says this can't go on like this. 1 Peter 4.15 says, None of you, however, should suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but should glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin in God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? Peter writes there and he says, guys, I'm telling you, I don't want you to suffer because of sin. I want you to do away with sin. But if you think that by doing away with sin, you're not going to suffer, you're just wrong. Because Jesus was perfect and never sinned, and there's not a human being who suffered more ever in the history of the world when he carried the sins of the planet on his back. And so God says, the time has come for us to take seriously our role in the world, to be gracious, to be sincere, to be about the truth. He lays all this out. As we wrap up in 1 Corinthians 6, I'll look at them, I'm going to break this down, we'll look at it next week. He says, if any of you has a legal dispute against another, do you dare go to court before the unrighteous and before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? Don't you know that we judge angels, not to mention ordinary matters? So if I have cases pertaining to this life, do you select those who have no standing in the church to judge you? We look for somebody that backs our viewpoint up instead of what God says in the body of the church. I say this to your shame, Paul says. I, have, I am always amazed when Christians run to court to deal with their problems. It is clear in Scripture, you do not do that unless it's the absolute, absolute necessary thing you have to do. You do everything you can to try to deal with it with one another. Now, does that mean like extreme cases? Like someone comes to you and says, hey, I murdered my wife. Her body's at home. No, call the police. Please. You can't handle that situation. That's, begun, that's above your authority or my authority. But he says, you won't handle these cases that you can handle, that you can look at someone and say, don't do that. Do this. And he looks and he says, I say this to your shame. You guys just treat each other like you're part of the world. You don't see that you're in a family. And in a family, you sit at a table and you talk about your loved ones and you say, we're concerned for Johnny. We're concerned for Billy. We're concerned for where they're headed. Let's pray for them. Let's do an intervention. Let's get other people involved. Let's do everything we can. He says, can't it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between his brothers? Not one person that knows the scriptures enough to be able to sit down and say, but God says do this, you should probably do that. But there's not one among you that you don't, you don't know your Bible, you don't know the word, you don't know how the Old Testament law and New Testament work together? Not one of you? Why? What are you doing then? What, what's the church then, Paul's saying? What's happened to you? Then he goes on to finish and he says, instead, believer goes to court against believer and before unbelievers. He says, you go to court and you, you defame the name of God. Let me ask you this morning. Do you sincerely believe the gospel? Do you sincerely believe the cross? Do you sincerely believe that God loves you, that he cares for you, that he's being patient with you, that when he disciplines you, he wants to do it with love and gentleness, not with a rod? Because you need to be disciplined and so do I. And do you believe that God's provided his body, the church, and family to help you do that? He's given you people in your life to help you do what he's doing because they love you, because there's a sense of not pride, but surrender. If you don't, would you just try to embrace that? Would you try to, to get to that place? Would you know the scriptures? Do you believe the truth? Do you believe that all that we, look, I didn't have my talking points up here this morning. Not a single thing up here was Matt's talking point. Even the title of the sermon came out of the scriptures. I'm not giving you anything but the truth. That's it. How will you respond? How am I going to respond to it? And I hope we respond like Paul is trying to convince this first Corinthian to respond. To take seriously sin and to be long-suffering and gentle and patient. But when you got to make a decision, you got to make it and you better be grieved over it. 
So let me ask you, are you grieved this morning over your sin? If you are, God says, come home. (laughs) You're in a good place. The prodigal son was grieved over his sin, came running to the father. The father's like, I've been waiting for you. (laughs) I've just been waiting. Maybe you're looking at this and you're thinking, thinking to yourself, wow, the Lord has helped me to do this. He's changed me. Like, I have the power of God in me helping me obey. Wow. Maybe you just need to take it some time in this moment of prayer and be like, man, God. Like Andrew talking to his parents. God, you're awesome that you put these people in my life. That you've, you've done this and it hasn't been about. I just want to take a moment and just, wow. If you're someone that is fighting God and pushing back and you're like that son and the don't. Don't incur the wrath and holiness of God in your life. Just surrender. It's okay. He knows you're a sinner. We know you're a sinner. I Trust me, we know. We've seen you. It's okay to come and say, help me. Great, we'll help you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, this is one of the hardest messages out of this 1 Corinthians book that I've been just wrestling with even speaking about because it's just so foreign to our world today. And so, Lord, in this moment, I just pray that if people in this room would consider themselves in one of three ways, if they don't know you, if they've never surrendered to you, if in Romans 1, they keep pushing you away and seeing their flesh just die to completely die and go away, I pray they'd finally say, I'm done. I don't want to end up like Romans 1. I surrender. I believe God is who he says he is, and I want to join the heavenly family. I pray today would be that day that they do that and recognize that you, according to John 3, 16 through 18, paid the price on the cross so that they don't have to die and that you came back to life to prove to them that there is a life after this death. And Lord, for those of us who maybe are seeing you do the works in us and making us better. We still know we're sinners. We still know we struggle, but we're watching you start to do more in our lives and change us and help us. Man, could we just pause and celebrate that in the next moment? And Lord, for those in this room who are Christians who are struggling, I pray they would finally just say, you know, I just need help. I'm gonna come. I'm gonna stop rejecting the person who comes to me or the couple of people and making excuses. And I'm just gonna say, I need help. And they would seek help help today. So Lord, for the next 30 seconds or so, I pray that we would just take a moment with you and then we'd stand to our feet and we'd sing together your praise.